Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. Come together this morning to worship the Lord as a cor- worship the Lord corporately as a body of believers uh, coming together to focus our attention on God, on the Lord Jesus Christ, on His grace to us, and all that has been provided for us uh, in our spiritual life, including God the Holy Spirit, who indwells each of us and who fills us. Jesus said that to the Samaritan woman that a time was coming when we would worship the Lord by means of spirit and by means of truth. It is God the Holy Spirit who is the one, the member of the Trinity, who enables us to live the spiritual life in the church age. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are to walk, and it is the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us through the uh, revealed Word of God, the completed canon of Scripture that we have. In order to live a life that glorifies God, we need to be in right relationship with Him, walking by the Spirit. Scripture teaches that when we sin, though, that we are out of fellowship. We're no longer walking by means of the Spirit. And so we recover by admitting or acknowledging our sin to Him through the use of 1 John 1, 9, which says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin our worship time by going to the Lord in prayer, having a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study his word. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we have to come together as a body of believers to study your word, to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by the study of your word, that we can come to look at our lives and live our lives on the basis of what you have revealed to us. In your word, we have truth. Scripture says that it is in the light of your truth that we see light and we see truth, that we can come to accurately understand the details of life around us, the circumstances that we face, and that we can respond to the circumstances of our lives by keeping our focus on you, uh, utilizing the principles in your word that we might uh, glorify you in everything that we do in life. Fathers, we come together as a body of believers. We pray that as we worship you this morning, our focus will be on you, that we will be able to concentrate on uh, the songs that we sing and the things that we read and hear, that God the Holy Spirit may use these things to uh, uh, mature us and to provide spiritual growth in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of announcements real quick before I forget them. First of all, uh, we're having a family night this uh, coming Friday night. Normally we have family nights on Saturday night, because that's just a lot easier for folks, but there was a special event, that uh, national event that is going on this Friday night that I thought would be beneficial to everyone. It is a town national town meeting hosted by uh, Joel Rosenberg. If you don't know who Joel Rosenberg is, he is a noted author. He's written several books uh, on fiction. His first book was called The Last Jihad. It was actually at the publisher and it was the story of terrorists using uh, air, airplanes to attack the United States. And that was at the publisher when 9-11 occurred. So the publisher said, now's not a real good time for this, this novel. So it was postponed uh, for about a year. And he uh, wrote two or three others, The Copper Scroll, Ezekiel Option. But then uh, about two years ago, he started, or three years ago, he started publishing some nonfiction works that are excellent analysis of what's going on in Islam, what's going on in the Middle East. The first was called Epicenter, and the most uh, recent one, what's uh, Inside the Revolution. Inside the Revolution, which is the basis for this town meeting, they have produced about an hour and a half long documentary. Uh, we'll only see, uh, I think, half of that, 30 to 40 minutes of it, and then there will be question and answer. This is uh, being um, 
live streamed out of a church in Philadelphia. So there are many churches around the country that are going to be able to live stream uh, this event. The main idea in Inside the Revolution is that the radical uh, revolution that occurred in Iran in the late 70s that brought the Ayatollah Khomeini into power and got rid of the Shah is has been exported now to many other Muslim countries in the form of radical uh, radical Islam and that this the impact that this is having around the around the world so this is going to be a uh, uh, I think a very informative really important meeting so we'll start serving some sandwiches chips easy things to eat about 5.30. If you can't get here till 6, 6.30, because of work, traffic, whatever, don't worry about that. Just come on in. There'll be food out there. Grab your plate. Come on in quietly. Sit down and watch, and then there'll be up here to question and answer uh, following that. So that will begin. We'll begin serving about 5.30 this Friday evening. Then Saturday morning from 9 to 12, there will be a ladies' prayer brunch um, and uh, at West Houston Bible Church in... It's, yes, it's, oh, 9-12, that's the date. That's this Saturday at 11 a.m. at West Houston Bible Church. Brunch will be served. And then if you hadn't noticed, it's just too bad my wife's not here because she gets cold at 80. Um, the air conditioner doesn't work. So we may have a short message this morning. So let's stand together for hymn number 234, Crown Him with many crowns. Number 234, crown him with many crowns. The Apostle Paul challenged the young Timothy as a pastor to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So that is one reason why we have the reading of Scripture every Sunday morning. Also, we go through various psalms, give you the opportunity to reflect upon these psalms, and many times there are great promises in these psalms that you should note and underline and perhaps commit to memory. The psalm this morning is a psalm of David. It's Psalm 61. Psalm 61. It is a short psalm emphasizing God's the security that every believer has in God. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Let us sing our second hymn. It's hymn number 25. Again, it is a, another meditation upon the character of God, which is part of our, our study this morning in 1 Kings chapter 19. So number 25, Immortal, Invisible. Giving is part of every believer's spiritual life. It's one of the ways in which we worship the Lord. We worship Him with every area of our life. We worship Him corporately. We worship Him individually. And one of the ways in which we do this is by uh, giving of that which God has given to us in order to support the teaching of His Word through the local church as well as through missionaries. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together. Father, you have blessed us in many tremendous ways. You have given us, Scripture says, everything we need for life, everything we need for godliness. You have provided it all. And you are the one who has given us all of the physical, material blessings which we enjoy that enable us to have the lives that we have and to 
uh, be able to exercise this wonderful privilege of studying your word. Now, Father, these gifts simply reflect our appreciation for all that you have given, provided for us, our desire to see your word taught uh, consistently, faithfully throughout uh, the world, our desire to see your word uh, taught faithfully here in this local church. And so these gifts are given for that purpose and that you might be glorified. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study of his word. Father, the Scripture says that what we have in the Scripture is your thinking. It is the thinking of Christ. And as we have the mind of Christ before us, we are to study it in its entirety, teaching the whole counsel of what you have revealed to us and how your word then relates to every issue of thought, of life, of intellection in the, in the human realm that we may come to understand who we are, uh, how we are to live before you, come to understand your plans and purposes in history, that as we align our thinking with the reality defined by you as the creator, that we can then uh, carry out your will, your plan for our life in a way that honors and glorifies you. Now, Father, as we study, uh, continue our study this morning in Elijah and continue to uh, learn from him principles that apply not only to the spiritual life of the Old Testament, but that of the New Testament of the church age. We pray that we might uh, be responsive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit, who will challenge us from the principles of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last time, as we got into 1 Kings 19, I started by talking about the fact that you and I often make the same mistake that Elijah makes in this chapter. We make the mistake of thinking that if we, uh, if we do things the way God says that we ought to do them, that somehow that will guarantee a certain result in life. And sometimes unconsciously or uh, in a non uh, or an unsophisticated way of, of thinking, we don't really focus on how we're formulating the goals, the objectives that form our own expectations. And then suddenly we hit a speed bump, and it sends us for a loop because we didn't expect that. That was going to happen. After all, we've been uh, faithful in our attendance of Bible class, faithful in studying God's Word, faithful in prayer, dependence upon Him, claiming promises, trying to walk by the Spirit. And so, Lord, shouldn't that have guaranteed a certain result? And now what I'm facing is uh, crisis, adversity, difficulty, heartache. Uh, what happened? Uh, what's wrong? And if we do not understand the dynamics of God's plan and purposes in life, and if we don't understand the principle of his and the reality of his incomprehensibility when it comes to his plans and purposes, then we often make these subtle mistakes of taking his plan for granted. In other words, we substitute our plan for his plan. What Elijah did, to give you an example, was that in, in a way he had formulated in his own mind what the purpose of his ministry was. 
and that the purpose for his ministry was to bring about revival in the northern kingdom of Israel, and that by challenging the people with the uh, discipline of God from uh, the Mosaic law and uh, announcing the drought, and seeing the drought for three and a half years, that that would prepare them. And then the demonstration of God's power on Mount Carmel would, again, bring evidence of God's reality into their lives. And the people would turn from the worship of the idols of Baal and the Asherah to the worship of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the nation would then turn away from its uh, paganism and its idolatry, and God would once again bring blessing into the nation. And so he settled on that that would be the end result of his ministry of the three and a half years that God had him in isolation and then the public confrontation with the prophets on Mount Carmel. He's thinking this is going to do it. When this is over with, the people are going to change and uh, we will have brought in, I will have brought in revival. And that didn't happen. He comes face to face with the reality of that in Je- uh, Jezebel's uh, hardened heart, her implacability in verse 2, where she threatens to take his life within the next 24 hours. And as he realizes what is going on, he just, he just tubes it. And we do the same thing. Let me give you a couple of examples building off of the illustrations I used uh, last time. Parents often face a crisis with children. They grow up, they uh, enter adolescence, they go off to college, and as try as they will to have instilled biblical values into their children, uh, somehow in their 20s, 30s, they just uh, no longer seem to be concerned about spiritual things. And the parents then question the care of God and the plan of God, and can I really trust God, and why is it that this has happened to me? Look at these other parents who have uh, raised uh, godly children, and it didn't happen to me, so God must, it must be God's fault. We end up blaming God just as Elijah is doing implicitly. See, what happens is we wrongly formulate the goal in our thinking. Wrong way to formulate that objective is to say, my goal in life as a parent is to raise obedient Christian kids who will love the Lord and obey Him. What's wrong with that? Can't control it. Those kids have volition. And so what you have done there is you have defined your life work as a parent in ways that are not under your your control. And those kids can... Uh, exercise their own volition and turn away from the Lord, and then you have children who are uh, disobedient and rebellious. The right way to formulate your thinking is to state that my goal is to be a godly, consistent parent, teaching my children about the Lord as faithfully as I can. So you can control that. You can control what you do as a parent and how you uh, model uh, doctrine, the application of doctrine in your life, and then the results are up to the volition of your children and the plan of God. Another way in which people often hit a tremendous uh, roadblock of disappointment is in their career. Uh, This has particular resonance today in the light of the economy. People work hard, they're committed believers, they're trying to apply everything that they have learned from the Word, making their spiritual life a priority, and they set a goal to have a, to be successful in their career, uh, to glorify God, to be able to provide all of the material things that they can for their family, and then after uh, years of faithful service for a company, all of a sudden they get pink slipped and they don't have a job, and next thing you know their 401K has dried up and uh, their other things have disappeared and they're uh, working at Home Depot and Walmart and wondering what in the world happened and has God deserted them. See, again, we do the same thing. We misshape, misformulate our goals in our head. The wrong way to say is my goal is to have a successful career, to provide for my family all the wonderful things that I can. 
So you can't control that. There's too many in, uh, too many variables that come into play having to do with uh, people who have more power, more uh, responsibility than you do in terms of shaping your career, your work, the economy, national and international policy. The right way to formulate the goal is to say that my goal is to be faithful, industrious, respectful of authority those over me, uh, I am to be a doctrine-applying believer so that God is glorified in my career. So you can control that. You can make the right decisions based on the circumstances that you are facing, but you recognize that beyond a certain point, the circumstances that you face and the results of your decisions are completely outside of your hands. They're in the hands of the Lord, and they are in the hands of other humans who make the decisions that impact you. See, a wrong way of stating a goal in a more general way is to say that my goal in life is to be happy and secure in my life as I see it. That's that's how we often think. That's my goal is to be happy, to be secure, to be fulfilled. That's what I am pursuing. But you can't control any of those things. That is beyond your ability and my ability. But what we can control is what we do, the decisions that we make in light of the circumstances that we're in, my goal is to grow spiritually and, and to mature and do everything in my life to the glory of God. That states it in ways that uh, we, can, we can control. There are various promises that relate to this, or Proverbs. Proverbs 16.9 states, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. See, we make our plans, but we have to recognize that ultimately it is up to the Lord as to how things work out, and in some cases up to the volition of other people. People will make decisions because of volition and because of free will, and that is allowed by God under his permissive will. And so sometimes people say, well, that must be God's will because that happened. Well, it's his permissive will. He allowed it to happen, but that doesn't necessarily make it good or correct. Uh, Proverbs twenty twenty four: a man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? You see, this brings into focus the fact that beyond a certain point, We do not know God's plans and purposes. We don't understand how we fit within the broader uh, scope of God's plan, what he is doing through us as an individual, through our family, uh, through our local church. This just fits within a much larger uh, panorama, and we don't understand anything more than what we can do, what we can control in terms of our in terms of our own experience. And so we have to face those decisions day by day and leave the rest in the Lord's hands. And the trouble is that most of us are too busy trying to jerk it back from the Lord's hands and take take that control back rather than just relaxing and trusting in Him. And when we do that and we hit these major events like uh, Elijah has faced, then we're not any different from Elijah. As soon as we hit that brick wall of unrealistic expectations and unrealized expectations, then we do the same thing. We are despondent, we become discouraged, we become depressed, and it is very difficult for us to to move forward in uh, the Christian life. Uh, Proverbs 21 One and two states the same principle. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So politicians may propose, but God disposes. And verse two, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So in Elijah's circumstance, the king's heart, that is Ahab, is in the hand of the Lord. The circumstances, what is going on, uh, in uh, in the northern kingdom. And Elijah had thought that this was up to him, that he could bring about these, the results that he desired through, the, through his own obedience and through the tremendous uh, manifestations of God which he faced or which he presented there on Mount Carmel. 
what happens is that when we formulate these goals in our mind, and sometimes, as I said, it's just it's subtle. We, we haven't really taken it out and really put it under the spotlight of conscious examination, and so we don't realize that we have uh, really sort of sidetracked our own uh, thinking by formulating our, uh, our life's goals, our hopes, our desires in ways that we ultimately cannot control. And then when we hit these roadblocks and we realize that these, these goals are unreachable, these desires we'll never realize, then what happens is we become angry, we become uh, discouraged, we become despondent, and we become depressed. But the reality is that when we face life biblically and we're able to, and we recognize that God is the one who is ultimately in control and we can have our, our, our hopes and our desires, but we recognize that ultimately it's up to the Lord so we don't uh, blow them up to too great of a, uh, great of an uh, emphasis, then when God leads or directs things in a, a way that is not what we expected, while we may have a measure of disappointment, the, our mental attitude focus on God is what stabilizes us, and we are able to go through those life-changing disappointments without letting it uh, knock us off the rails of our forward momentum in the spiritual life. So this is what's going on here, and God is going to teach Elijah uh, a, a very important lesson. He's going to have his own personal Bible class to emphasize the doctrine that underlies all of this, and that is the incomprehensibility of God, is that there are things that we know about God for sure, that we can know true things about God with certainty, but there are many things that we do not know about God, and his plan ultimately is beyond our knowledge, and therefore we have to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So let's have a little brief review of the episode in 1 Kings 19. Ahab has come back to Jezreel in his chariot as Elijah directed him, and he's arrived and he begins to tell Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. All, notice it says all that Elijah had done, also how he'd ex- ex- executed all the prophets with the sword. Notice the word all. He is giving a comprehensive account, and I believe that he wanted to impress Jezebel as much as he had been impressed, but she is not being impressed at all, and she gets angrier and angrier by the moment, and uh, more and more vindictive, and so she sends a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. In other words, they're lying dead at the uh, bottom of the cliffs of Carmel, and you will too, within the next 24 hours. So uh, she threatens him. Then we come to the third verse. Nobody asked me about this last week, which I thought was interesting, but it's uh, something I should note. Verse 3, if you're using a New American, um, or if you're using the New King James Version, it reads, when he saw, when he saw that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, there's a textual problem here. Actually, it's really an unusual form in the Hebrew that it could have one or two roots, and it's in the Masoretic text where they put vowels in. Um, The vowels were not there in the original. So if you just change up a vowel, uh, you have a different word. And the word for to see and the verb for fear are very closely related and they're identical in this particular form. And so in, um, in the Masoretic text, it reads, uh, he saw, and that's what's translated in the New King James Version. But in the Septuagint, in the Vulgate translation, in the Syriac, and in some other uh, Hebrew uh, writings, it has the verb to be afraid and says that he was afraid. Now, the bottom line is the same as he reacts to uh, Jezebel. So whether it, the text says that he's afraid, which I doubt, 
I doubt that is the better reading. I think that comes out of these uh, secondary translations. I don't see Elijah caving into fear, but caving into uh, disappointment and, and a perception of failure because what he sees here, the word ra'ah for seeing is often used as a verb of perception, is that he, he realizes uh, profoundly at that point that he's not going to see a revival in the northern kingdom. He realizes that with all that has gone on, there it's not moving Jezebel at all. It's not going to get anywhere. And a result of that 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 realization, he just uh, falls apart into disappointment and and despair. And he hits the road south. He goes about ninety hundred miles, something like that, from the uh, northern valley of Jezreel down to Beersheba in the south. Israel is often spoken of as, in terms of parameters. Uh, we might say in Texas, if you travel everywhere from Beaumont to El Paso, that gives you your eastern and western parameters. In Israel, you say, well, everywhere from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is at the farthest point in the north, and Beersheba is near the furthest uh, point in the south, down in the Negev. And so this is the parameters of, of, uh, of Israel of the promised land in verse 4. He goes an additional, leads us, drops his servant off in Beersheba, goes another uh, day's journey into the wilderness where he finds a little shade under a broom tree, and he prays to the Lord that he might die. He just wants to give up. He has completely failed. The reason he thinks he's a failure is because he misunderstood his his goal, his objective. His goal was not to bring about revival. That would be a legitimate desire, but that wasn't his purpose. But he had let his desire slip into the position of being a primary goal or objective, and he realized that was unrealizable, and so he just uh, falls apart into despair and despondency. And I don't think the terrain would have helped a whole lot. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this, the Lord shows his grace to him. And this is one of the great lessons here is that the way in which we are to handle problems is through the problem-solving techniques that God has revealed to us in his word. For us in the church age, this means that whenever we hit hard times, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we are in fellowship, that we are walking by means of the Spirit so that whatever takes place in the midst of the uh, trial, the tribulation, the adversity, that we can handle it in a way that has uh, spiritual value for our for our own spiritual growth. So we confess our sins, and then we are to stay in fellowship as much as we can, walking by the Spirit, abiding with Christ, walking in the light, walking by the truth. All of these are terms that are used in the Gospel of John, in Paul's writings, and other writings that all describe different facets of the same thing, which basically means we need to stay in fellowship and, and walk by means of the Holy Spirit and putting into practice the principles of God's Word. That's the next development, which is the faith rest deal, trusting God, putting into application the principles and promises that God has given us. And so the faith rest drill is really fundamental to everything in the Christian life. We just need to learn to trust him, not in a vacuum, not just believing in God because we have faith in faith. If you want to believe in faith in faith, and there's all kinds of different faith movement churches you can, you can go to. That's nothing but pure mysticism. We have faith in promises. We have faith in the person of God. We have faith in specific content that God has given us. And when we are living on the basis of those truths, then we are solving the problem. We can be relaxed even in the midst of tremendous opposition, uh, difficulty, and, uh, and resentment. But then the next thing is we have to be oriented to God's grace. That means not only that we're not trying to you know, somehow stimulate God's blessing by the things that we do. We realize everything that God gives us is based on who he is and what Christ did on the cross. But we also have to learn to let that impact the way we deal with circumstances and other people. When things don't go the way we want them to do, we don't 
cave in to uh, anger, resentment, striking out at other people, verbally lashing at them, being irritated. What we do is we learn to relax, uh, treat others in grace just as we expect God to treat us in grace and to be aligned with that. Now, here's Elijah, and he's out of fellowship. He's not trusting God. He is uh, having his own little pity party under the broom tree. And yet God shows that he always meets us where we are. Even when we're out of fellowship, God is always working in our life to get us back to reorient to doctrine, to confess our sins, and to refocus. And so this is a tremendous example of that where the Lord sends an angel to provide nourishment for him. Once again, God, as I pointed out last time, God is emphasizing the fact that there are physical needs that have to be met. Often when we are run down, tired, uh, hungry, uh, just think about your kids when they get uh, hungry or tired in the afternoon and they start throwing their little temper tantrums and they're out of sorts and they're grumpy. Uh, we're not any different when we get older. Just because we're in our 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s doesn't mean that when we're tired because we've been working hard and getting by on five hours of sleep a night, we haven't worked out in two weeks because we just can't figure out how to do it. We haven't been eating right. We've been uh, eating junk food off our diet, whatever it is. We know by the, hopefully by the time you're 40 or 50 what you should and shouldn't eat. And, um, and how it affects you. And this can have an effect on your, your mental attitude. And so the Lord provides for Elijah, and that's the broom tree there. Let me back up to six. He looked there by his head were cake baked on coals, a jar of water. He ate, drank, and he slept some more. So he was very tired and he needed to get that sleep in. Verse 7, the angel tells him to arise and eat. He's got a long journey. It's about another 100, 120 miles down to Sinai, and which is called in this passage Horeb. So he goes, he eats, he drinks, and he heads down to Sinai. Now, this is a map of the Sinai Peninsula, and down in the lower uh, lower point there, in the southernmost area, is the traditional site of Mount Sinai on Jebel Musa, and yet uh, most biblically, biblical scholars do not believe this is uh, accurate in terms of its location, in terms of there are various places in the Scripture that give travel times, uh, especially for the uh, Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt, and how long did it take them to get to uh, Kadesh Barnea from, uh, with, with uh, two or three million people going through the wilderness. But if you don't believe it's two or three million people, and you only think it's a couple of hundred thousand, which is a liberal view, then it's not going to take as long to get there. Uh, and so they, uh, the, you can travel the distance uh, much, much more quickly. And all these different kinds of things come into uh, figuring out where the location is, but most uh, most conservatives look at uh, have alternate sites somewhere up in the center part of the Sinai Peninsula, maybe a little to the to the west or uh, up towards the north somewhere in that area. We're not exactly sure. It doesn't take Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to get there. He is, this is, he, but he takes 40 days and 40 nights to, before he finally arrives at the cave. It's not, a, it doesn't take him that long to travel that distance. Uh, you can travel 120 miles or so to, to, down to Sinai in just a matter of, uh, uh, even if it's the farthest point down there in the south, you could do it in less than 10 days. But So he's taking a lot of time. There's a reason for that, and uh, this is makes a connection between Elijah, makes this connection between Elijah and Moses, between Elijah and Moses. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai when God was giving him the law. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, there are earthquakes, there are flashes of lightning and thunder and wind, all of these physical manifestations that Elijah is about to witness were there for Moses. So we have the place that Moses, where Moses was when he received the law. We have the physical manifestations of the appearance of God, which is known as a theophany, 
we have those uh, same manifestations with Moses as we do um, uh, uh, with Moses we do with Elijah, and then we have this same time period of forty days and forty nights. You can't escape the fact that the writer of First uh, Kings wants us to make this connection between Moses and Elijah, and with what God is teaching, with what God is going to be teaching Elijah here at Mount Horeb. So he goes into a cave there somewhere uh, on the mountain, and he is able to uh, perhaps uh, find a place that's a little cooler. He goes into a cave, spent the night in that place, and the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, twice this question is going to be asked, and the emphasis in both places is on a verbal revelation to Elijah. The reason I'm emphasizing that is this is the passage that you'll hear many people go to, and they'll say, well, I just need to get off by myself where I can listen to that still, small voice of God. And, and that's very mystical that somehow we just get away from everything and God will speak to us. Well, God only speaks to us through his word. He doesn't speak to us apart from his word anymore. God speaking to us in any way, shape, or form is revelation. Not all revelation was inscripturated or canonized, but any time God communicates, it is revelation. Now, we have nonverbal communication that goes on in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, Romans 1, uh, 18 and following talks about the fact that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in the works of his creation. But this is a non verbal, non-directive type of revelation. It is called general revelation by theologians because it doesn't give specific content about God, but it's very clear that it gives enough information about the existence of God, about his powerful attributes, that all human beings know that God exists and are held accountable for that, for they are without excuse, Romans 1 says. So we have nonverbal communication, but we also have verbal communication from God or verbal revelation, which is called by theologians special revelation. And not all special revelation is included in Scripture. There are times when God told prophets to seal up the rest of what I've revealed to you, um, and things were not said or not communicated on, so uh, they weren't intended to be written down, but nevertheless, they are special revelation. Whenever God speaks to his creatures, that is revelation. Now, we believe that revelation ceased with the closing of the canon of Scripture because God had given a sufficient revelation to the human race, and so that in the church age, the issue is not seeking more revelation, but to unpack and understand the complete revelation God has given us so that we live in light of what he has said. We are not to go to God uh, contemplating our navel, uh, waiting for some sort of mysterious message through a divine Ouija board, taking our Bible in our hands, closing our eyes, opening it, pointing to a verse in Scripture with our finger and saying, hmm, this is what God uh, wants me to do. This is not how God communicates today. He communicates through uh, his word that is already revealed. And if you look at this passage and carefully understand the Hebrew, the still small voice, we'll see there's a real problem with that translation, but the still small voice is not any kind of revelation. The revelation comes in these two questions that frame the event. Elijah, what are you doing here? He's getting Elijah to stop and reflect upon what he, the decisions he has made in getting to this point in his life where he just thinks he's a failure, he wants to give up, wants God to take his life. God asks the same thing of us when we go through circumstances, when we know all of a sudden that, that this isn't what, what the way things ought to be. We need to stop and say, okay, how did I get here? What am I doing here? How, am I, how have I ended up 
mired in carnality like this. It's a time for self-reflection and analysis in light of God's Word, and this is the beginning point of uh, change where we are turning from our own self-centered carnality to walking in dependence upon God. And this is what God is doing with Elijah. By asking the question, he wants Elijah to start reflecting on uh, some things in terms of Scripture in the past, in terms of what he knows about God, so that he will straighten out his own thinking. And in the process, then God is going to uh, put... Elijah right back into the battle. So in verse 9, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then we come to verse 10, and God says, and Elijah responds, notice he's still self-absorbed. He's still thinking in terms of his own uh, his own failure. He's still thinking that, Lord, I did everything right. Why didn't it come out right? I know none of you have ever been there, but... I think I was there three times this last week. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Uh, Literally, Yahweh Elohim of the armies. The word host is just an antiquated English word for armies. Uh, He says, For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have broken the Mosaic covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. It's just me, Lord, and they want to take my life, so why don't you just do it? It'll go quicker. You know, there's just a real irony here that he's running away from a threat on his life, and then he's just telling God to go ahead and take, take his life. It shows how irrational we get when we get self-absorbed and mired in our own self-pity. So God's going to give him a little lesson. See, what he's done is he thought he had God figured out. He thought he had God's plan down and that God was going to use him to bring about this national revival. And when it didn't happen the way he thought it would, it just shook him to the very foundation of his thinking. So God has got to teach him to think a little more correctly about who God is. So in verse 11 we read, Uh, God said, go out, stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. This was like a tornado. This is far beyond anything you experienced when Hurricane Ike went through here last year. A wind that will break the rocks in pieces is something that it would frighten you, if you were there, God would be protecting him, but shards of rock are bl- blowing and dirt and everything else is blowing everywhere. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there is an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there's a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now, we're going to stop there. So we have these these three events, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. These are associated with the effects of God's judgment. They are not God. They are simply manifestations of God and manifestations of his judgment uh, upon man. And so God is going to show, uh, is showing Elijah that just because he had these great manifestations of God's power in his life, the provision for him when he was on the um, uh, uh, brook carrot and the ravens were bringing him food, the provision for him through the oil and the meal with the widow in Zarephath, and God's answer to prayer for restoring the life of the widow's son when he died, and then, of course, the tremendous manifestation of God's power on Mount Carmel when God answered Elijah's prayer that he would uh, uh, just vaporize this altar all of that are, all of that reflects just externals of god's uh, god's ability but they don't tell us about the core of god's person and his plan and so what elijah has done is the same thing we tend to do as we get our our focus shifted away from the person of god to uh, the effects of god in our life and we are we lose focus on who he is 
and his plan and purpose. And what happens is that in this process is we forget that just because we know some things about God, we don't know everything about God, and he is not under our control. We, need, we have a God that we think we can control because of certain promises and principles, and we know a certain amount, but God is much bigger than that. There's a book I read many, many years ago, and its basic thesis is very good, written by J.B. Phillips called, Your God is Too Small. And it's a great book for many people because they really have God in a box, and they think of God in a in a certain narrow way that they think they actually control all the data about God, who he is, and what he's going to do. And we forget that God is, is, is enormous. God is, is immense, theologians say, in, a, in the sense that all of his attributes are, are uh, eternal and they are infinite, and we can't control all of that. And so this doctrine is called the incomprehensibility of God. And this is what gets brought out in the last phrase of this verse. And so I've just put up some of the different translations that you may find, depending on the translation that you have that you're looking at. The King James and the and the uh, New King James translated a still, small voice. And that gave certain people the idea that this was a verbal revelation from God, that once you get past all the fireworks, uh, you just get down to God has to speak to you very quietly. So go away into your closet and pray, have your quiet time, and there God will, will speak to you. Many of you have heard that kind of theology. Uh, the word that is translated voice is a Hebrew word kol, Q-O-L, and it can mean voice, but it also primarily just means a sound, that's, and that's its root meaning is a sound or a noise. The New American Standard translates it a sound of gentle blowing. The New uh, uh, English translation of the Net Bible translates it there was a soft whisper. But when you hear whisper, you still think in terms of God communicating something to you. Uh, the English Standard Version says it's the sound of a low whisper. The NIV says the sound of a gentle whisper. However, the Hebrew doesn't have that word for, for whisper at all. Literally, it says there was a sound of, and then the next word can be small or thin, indicating something that's almost imperceptible. And then the, the next word is defined by the, by halot, which is the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, the, the, uh, uh, best Hebrew English lexicon that we have available today, uh, translates that word as a calm or a vibrant silence. It is the sound of silence. You know, Simon and Garfunkel didn't come up with this. It, God's not communicating anything here. This is not God speaking at this, at this time. It is that in all of the sturm und drang of the wind and the earthquake and the fire and all of the noise, suddenly it all stops and there is just this incredibly profound Silence. And what God is getting Elijah to do is to think about who God really is, and he's beyond anything that Elijah could ever could ever think of. And God is going to come right back, uh, come right back to the question here in verse thirteen. And we read, So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, the only revelation, the only statements that are made in this episode are these two questions by God. What are you doing here? The so-called still small voice isn't a still small voice at all. It is a profound unimaginable silence that causes Elijah to have to think a little more deeply about who God is. Now, in the parallel to this, in the life of Moses, when Moses was up on uh, Sinai, 
and God passed before him, God said to, to, uh, to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, Elijah knows the, his, his Pentateuch. He knows the Torah. He knows what happened when Moses was on Sinai. And so there is a parallel drawn here by the thing, by the overall context that God is reminding Elijah of his grace and his control of the history of Israel. Because what has happened is that the North, the kings in the northern kingdom are in disobedience to God and under divine discipline. Elijah's thinking God's going to solve the whole problem and do everything right now, and what God is going to demonstrate to Elijah is he's going to bring about his plans and his purposes, and he's going to deal with all of this, but it's going to take a longer period of time because God is multitasking and doing many other things. So God is reminding Elijah that he is merciful and gracious, and even though the northern kingdom is in disobedience, just as Elijah's been out of fellowship, God is dealing with Elijah in grace, and he's going to continue to deal with the northern kingdom in grace. That he is by no means going to forget the guilt of the Omri dynasty of Ahab and Jezebel, and he will indeed bring about punishment upon them in his time, but not in, not in necessarily in Elijah's time. And so the silence is a time for Elijah to reflect upon the doctrine in his own soul, to be reminded of these things, and God in his turn again says, what are you doing here? The focus of all of this is to make Elijah reflect upon the incomprehensibility of God. He thought he knew what God was doing. Often we think we know what God is doing in our own lives with our careers, our children, our marriages, our families, whatever, that God, if we do everything right, God's going to bring about the result that we want. We think that's, that's going to happen. We have God under control. But the fact is that God is incomprehensible. But what governs his incomprehensibility is his righteousness. That's what comes out of the, uh, the, the statement he makes to Moses. He is going to bring about the uh, righteous judgment of evil, and so we can trust him. But he is incomprehensible, so we cannot control him. One of the Simple ways in which this has been communicated in literature was in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by, by C.S. Lewis. It's a, it happens at the end of the, at the end of the film, end, end of the book. And if you haven't seen it, or for those of you who don't remember, it's a story, uh, fictional account that C.S. Lewis wrote that teaches certain principles from scripture where these three children transported into this fantasy world and in that fantasy world, they uh, face the battle between good and evil, and the leader of the good forces is Aslan, who is a lion, obviously a reference to Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. And the youngest of the uh, uh, pensive children is Lucy. Lucy has a particular attachment to Aslan. And at the end, after the war has been won, suddenly Lucy begins to realize that Aslan has left the premises. And so now she's searching for him. And I want to show you this clip so that you can hear. Uh, this is just a great line. It's so simple, but it is so profound. Don't worry. We'll see him again. When? In time. One day he'll be here, and the next he won't. But you mustn't press him. After all, he's not a tame lion. 
He is good. See, that just crystallizes it. He's not a tame lion. You can't control him. God's not going to do what you think he's going to do. But he is good. Lewis just crystallizes that in such a simple, sophisticated line of dialogue for us. See, Lucy realizes, as her friend says to him, you mustn't fret. After all, he's not a tame lion. And then she says, but he is good. That is the incomprehensibility of God. Scripture emphasizes two things. First, God is incomprehensible. That means we can't fully know him. We can't know him completely or exhaustively. He's infinite. He is the creator God of the universe. But he is knowable. We can know certain things about him that are true. We can know certain things about him that are accurate. We can state certain things about him from what he has revealed to us that are certain and accurate and that we can depend on. But we have to always recognize that we cannot know God fully and exhaustively, but we can know God truly and accurately. Job says it this way in Job 11, 7, and 8. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Isaiah says it in Isaiah forty seventeen and 18. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? And see, this is what Elijah is wrestling with. God's plan isn't what Elijah thought God's plan would be. And so in verse 14, God says to, uh, Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I'm alone left. See, he is just simply restating the same thing he said in verse 10. You think he's a little slow on the uptake? Just like we are. We still say, look, I've done everything right. Why isn't coming out the way I think it ought to come out? But he is, but God is going to correct him now in the next couple of verses, and he points him forward. His life's not over with. God's not through with him yet. He still has a profound ministry before him. Verse 15, the Lord says, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Now, this is not going to uh, really bring about its results until we get into about Second Kings chapter 9. Uh, also, the second thing he's supposed to do is anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. He won't actually do that. Elisha will do that. And then he is to anoint Elisha, uh, the, let me back up. Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahlah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And then God says it shall be who whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, uh, Elisha will kill. Yet, verse 18, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. See, you're not alone. You just think you are in your self-absorption. I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knee have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so Elijah then goes on his mission and goes forward. We'll pick that up next time. The thing that we need to emphasize here is to realize that God is incomprehensible. We can know what we know truly and accurately, and we need to know it. We need to know the Word uh, because God has revealed this to, to us, and it is ours, and it is absolutely, absolutely accurate and dependable. But we need not make the mistake that because we know a certain amount of doctrine, because we understand the word, that therefore we have a handle 
on God and what God is doing in history, what God is doing in our nation today, what God is doing in our own lives, because we don't know those things. God has not revealed them to us. All we can do is look at those circumstances and decide, are we going to respond and react to these circumstances in a way that honors and glorifies God by applying his word, or are we going to let the circumstances and situations of our lives be the cause of our uh, disappointment, despair, and cause us to lose uh, the joy that we should have as believers. That joy should never be dependent upon circumstances. It should only be dependent upon the infallible, never-changing uh, word of God and person of God. As we bow our heads together, close our eyes, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we have your word to reveal to us who you are, who we are, that as we study the lives of the great prophets of the Old Testament, study the circumstances in Israel in the Old Testament, that we come to understand principles that we know from the New Testament. We see them worked out in the flesh in the lives of those in the Old Testament, that these are not plaster saints, but that these are uh, men of like nature as we are, and yet we can learn from their example. Father, we recognize that you have solved every sin problem in all of history through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. That when he paid that penalty, sin no longer became an issue. The issue now is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There may be some here this morning who are unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, and this is the opportunity you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is your opportunity to trust in Jesus. The instant you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you are immediately uh, justified. You receive the imputation of God's perfect righteousness. He declares you to be just before him. You receive eternal life. You're born again, and these can never be taken from you. And it is our prayer that if you are here this morning and you are not saved, you have never trusted Christ, that you would receive that gift from God this morning. Father, we pray for the rest of us that you would challenge us with these principles of your word, that we might learn to walk more faithfully in dependence upon you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please stand. We'll sing our closing hymn. It's in the back, inside back cover, Land of Hope and Glory, Land of Hope and Glory. And I'm going to ask Doug Daly, if he would please, uh, belay that. I'm going to ask Bob Guerra, since he's up visiting from the valley. I'm going to ask Bob Guerra if he would please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer.